Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. Coming up next is something indescribable, tantalizing, and mind-numbing. Enjoy. Smug. Confident. Secure because you are sane. Do you know what madness is or how it strikes? Have you seen the demon? That surged through the corridors of the crazed mind? Come with me. Into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my world. Let me lead you into it. Exercise the terror from scum of the earth. Okie dokie, folks. I'm Frank Benacci, and I'm the scum of the earth. So I don't have a proper intro this week. This is one of the first interviews I recorded, and I hadn't really settled on doing that weird monologue thing I do at the beginning of every episode. Does anybody even like that? I don't know. Just doing it. So this is my interview with my old friend, John Lang. He's a buddy of mine for a good 11 years. Jesus Christ, I'm old. He's a filmmaker. He's a funny as hell dude. That's why I wanted to have him on. As I said in Marcus's interview, I want this to be a show where I could uh, talk to established uh, genre vets, but also a place where I could have place I could talk to friends of mine when they have something to promote. And as you'll see, John is just a funny son of a bitch. I thought he was a good fit for the show and he's a big horror fan. So no monologue this week. Well, I got a funny story. So John, Marcus, and I all met on the same film. They were production assistants. They were new in the game, more or less. This, Oh my God, I just remembered this whole story. So anyway, there was this other production assistant. I don't remember what her name was, and I wouldn't say it anyway. She was this really mousy, very quiet, shy girl. She seemed nice. I didn't really have any interaction with her. But then we had the rap party, right? And we, we did the rap party on the final day of shooting. So we all worked a full 13, whatever hour day. And then we all had to run home, get changed. Actually, I didn't even run home. I just bought a bag of clothes. So I I'd probably had 12 hour workday cranky ass and just put on my Sunday best and went to this uh, restaurant that they closed for the rap party. And uh, so that girl PA who didn't speak, she gets decked out in a, a scandalous outfit. And brings her brother to the rap party who had never been on set and worn a lot of makeup. That's fine to wear makeup, but I mean, he wore too much makeup. I mean, he's, I'm talking like Christina Aguilera, like circa 2001, or just any era of Christina Aguilera, when you really think about it. She wears too much makeup. I think she's got a pretty face. You don't need all that. So now I would get drunk at these things, but that's nothing compared to what this girl did. She got so bombed. And started making out with everybody. And I mean everybody, I mean everybody. Me, she just kind of came over when I was in mid-conversation, started sucking on my ear, which was kind of awkward. Because again, we never spoke. I appreciated it because not for the obvious reason that somebody's giving me physical attention, but more because she was so drunk that she made mine 
and John, because John was bombed at this party too, drunken buffoonery seemed totally inconsequential. Like when I came back the next day to the production office to uh, a rental truck return, I had to return all the G&E gear to the uh, rental house. And nobody was talking about how drunk I was, which was pretty profoundly drunk. They were just talking about the girl who was just running around making out with everybody. But the creepy thing is, is she didn't just make out with everybody. Like she came up to me. So I'm like talking to somebody. Her brother followed her everywhere she went. And then when she came over to suck my ear, her brother wearing too much makeup just had this weird kind of creepy smile and stared at me as his sister started sucking on my ear. So then a few months later on Facebook, I made like a softball joke about the Pope. She went on a weird religious tirade on me and then unfriended me. It wasn't even like a crazy joke. I was in altar bar. I'm not going to make a crazy joke about the Pope. But anyway, here's John's interview. It had nothing to do with John. This whole thing just reminded me of that. Anyway, hope you enjoy the interview. John's really funny. Uh, thank you, Frank. Well, um, when I told my friend that I was going on a podcast to talk about a film, they asked, John, what is the uh, name of the podcast you're going on? I said, it's the scum of the earth. And my friend said, well, that's really on brand for you. I'm like, oh, why are we friends? <laughs> uh, I'm good. I'm awesome. good, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Aside from the diabetes. Well, you know, at least you'll get some of that sweet Wilford Brimley money. When we had Marcus on recently, we all met on the same mm. project yes is, we did well there was the first one which was a lot of fun so fun we had a great time on that one and those same producers brought us back a few months later for another film and that was not so much fun yeah it was uh really really rough we were working in uh brooklyn and queens the winter of 2011 you know Has it was it snowing that fucking and long it's been that long, yeah. It was Jan oh, it was February of 2011, and it was like blizzarding. And then when it didn't, when it would stop snowing, it would drop to 10 degrees, so all the snow would freeze into ice. And it was just a real motherfucker. But it trauma bonded us, you know. We're all buddies uh, still, a decade on plus, because we met and befriended each other on this horrible, horrible set run by idiots that was a, those people were all i don't cool. i don't want to ever bring up their names on the show because i don't even I, hopefully i hope this show gets to a point where fans are able to dig and figure mm -hmm. it out for themselves because mm -hmm. i don't want i don't want to say what it is but i bet yeah, you there's no. enough pieces in there that you could probably piece together if you go through like do some internet-y searches yeah uh, dude and about that job it was a massive blizzard that year and I could not keep my feet dry. Original every day became part of my practice because I just didn't have good boots. And even if you did have good boots, it didn't matter. It was like your feet were getting soaked. It was just slush up to like a good your ankles, in. your ankles, yeah. the cutoff point. Uh, so I just started. This would be I'd put on socks, maybe two pairs because it was also very cold. Then a plastic bag over those socks. Then another pair of socks over that. So that sock was just going to take just take a beating but it was just to hold the bag in place yeah so this became my routine every morning and i would just walk around with ice because then it would just free so i'd just be walking around in frozen shoes i'm amazed i didn't like lose a limb from yeah. that job 
Uh, sadly, uh, I, as I said, I remember with, go ahead. our whole, I remember my whole routine. So you weren't the only one doing that. Yeah. It's uh, it was, it became a thing. Thank God. What's his name? Who's the Christ? The costume designer was such a nice guy. He would like give oh, me Bevins. fresh. Yes. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael Bevins. He's such Good the guy. Sweetest, sweetest guy on the planet would always give me like fresh shocks when he saw me. Cause ugh, it wasn't fun, dude. I it was not a, fun. I don't have the body to do that anymore. I'm like not, I'm an old man now. I could never do that anymore. Stuff like what that. What about when they made you guys carry an entire dolly up five flights of stairs and then didn't use it? Oh yeah. So they wanted us to take a uh, Fisher 10 or a Fisher 11. I can't remember. It was a Fisher dolly. It weighs around 400 pounds. So, yep. and the stairs were narrow. Like, so it was only like when you're turning a corner, when you were going up, it was just enough room for two people and the dolly. So two people had to like get that around the turn. And, and then the sons of bitches, you could hear them. I'm walking. Where's that Fisher dolly. Why is it taking so long? It's like, it's cause two people are hump. We were cursing. Oh, it was a nightmare. Never and again. then, and then they didn't use it because they decided not to, because they were making a feature film. I will say this, a whole fucking feature with no shot list. That I've never seen. No anything, shot list. Never seen. And then they were confused as to why we would be getting annoyed. Like, why don't these guys get it? We'd have to set Dolly track. And it takes, you know, it takes time. Like, this is why you like plan these kind of things out. So I remember you this. don't waste time. We'd set Dolly, like level it all out. And then they they look at it and go, no, that's not it. Uh, how about this way? And it's like, no. Figure out the shot first and your frame first, and then you set dolly track. You don't set the dolly track to see what it's going to look like, then do that. It was insane. Like, I've never. Frank, you remember how the main guy, the the AD, wore a fucking ascot? Yeah. Oh, they were pretentious like he, as shit. He wore, too. he wore, you know, like winter clothes and a parka, but then he had this ascot. It's like, what is wrong with you? And it's not like he was French or European. These fuckers were from Canada. I mean, I don't think of like, Sorry, Canada. Sorry, Canadian listeners. I don't think of. Oh, he's Canadian. He can he can get away with an ascot. Fuck you. I can't. That's like me wearing an ascot. No, I would I'm, take. Um, I'm straight working class garbage. I should never be seen in a, an ascot. You're, you're all right. You're just from Brooklyn. <laughs> and then I remember at the rap party, I said, I am going to take a double bacon burger and I'm going to fucking throw it at the director's head. And our good friend Carmine said, he goes, John, if you do that, you get a burger, you throw it at his head, I'll give you $500 cash. I should have done it. I had nothing to lose. Yeah, I'll never why, see why, those guys again. Uh, why didn't and, they take the deal? And that director, too, dude. Like, you look at his credits since then, non-existent. Never worked again, that guy. Oh, he did, kind of. He co-directed a movie, and then he went away. Well, here I believe that my theory on that is I have theories about that because that man was mm. incompetent. That was an incompetent oh. human being. So my belief is, A, that that was done before this film. I think it was chronologically. I think you're correct. And I think there's two directors because he had to have been removed because mm -hmm. there's like no Rogue way. One. What? Like How's Rogue that? One. Like Rogue One. Yes. <laughs> Except those guys are very confident. <laughs> confident. Well, that's a different story. But yeah, they Rogue One him. No, you're right because I remember there's some stuff that bears out that they did uh, that film first. So I think you're correct. Yeah. And then you look at his IMDb, it just disappears after that. It's like the guy was, he can't work. Justifiably <laughs> so. 
It was something Justify wrong with, with that man. All he was trying to do was like he kept like I think he really just got into filmmaking to just like get girls because he just kept hitting on all of the like female ACs or hitting on like the other uh, women working in the crew. And I really think that's what it is. He's just like, I want to get laid. There's a lot of guys like that in this business. I notice. I, well, I've, I, I have never dated once in this industry. I worked as Gina. I never even asked so much as asked like a coworker out. I, I, well, cause I know how incestuous that group is because it's really yeah. a community. And yeah. I would watch as other people would date. Everybody's gossiping about it. So yeah, it's like, yeah. Unless, I, and I, I'm very private in my shit. And it's just like, I don't want, I outsource my also, wife. I, I remember a guy I knew talking about how he was making a, a short and he and his then girlfriend were making it together and they broke up in the middle of the production and it was just a disaster. So unless you're, unless you're one in a million, unless you're, you know, Fellini and Giulietta Messina, <laughs> unless you're them or, you know, Cassavetes and uh, Gina Rollins, just, just, yeah. Date outside the industry, date a vet, date a veterinarian. They're good people, compassionate yeah. people. Well, what except, they do is more important than the shit we do. Except our vet. We don't like our vet right now. I'm so. sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think if you guys really, you and Marcus and uh, Carmine, I think really more of you guys from that set as like my war buddies than like, oh, we worked on this set together. Right. More so than most things, because that was such a profoundly bad experience for us. <laughs> that so bad and like, we all talk like it's like we got we all went our separate ways but when we run into each other it's just like ah, i remember guadalcanal it's just like <laughs> exactly just smoking uh old old golds and staring into the middle distance it's like that scene in straight story where richard farnsworth oh. meets that other vet and they just start right. weeping at the bar together yeah yeah but uh things are better now yes for us Things have, have gotten better. Improved. We've matured. We've moved on to um, different things. Uh, you have become a film director and producer in the time since then. Since those days as yes. a lonely, a lowly PA. A lowly production assistant. Uh, I was yes. dripping electric, but I was basically glorified PA because I didn't know what I was doing. You at least have a skill set. I didn't. That was the thing. I was just fun to be around. So people just would keep hiring me. <laughs> you, are, you are fun yeah it's just like you're really shit at this i've actually had people say you're really not good but you're funny so okay cool so your first film recovery when did that come out so recovery my first film i co-wrote and directed and co-produced it and it was released in june of 2019 i was very happy with the final film i'm very proud of it it's a good film and actually, thank you thank you and actually, it's um, there's another connection there in that Mike Starr, my friend, who was in the film we met on before the disaster project, is in is in recovery. My film recovery, and it's a horror slasher psychological thriller set in a drug rehab facility uh, where the patients are snowed in by a blizzard and cannot leave while someone starts picking off the other patients and staff. And <clears throat> we released that in the summer of 2019. I was working on my follow-up film uh, after that in late 2019. And then unfortunately the pandemic hit uh, like every other person on the planet, 
my plans were upended. So my second film went into turnaround. Just everything was so chaotic and everyone was sitting on their couches and nothing was happening. I wasn't really my my disappointment and or upset at my movie going into uh, purgatory was existed, but it was not as bad as my, you know, terror at am I going to live? Am I am I family? Is my family going to live? Is COVID going to kill us all? Things are, are semi normal now, I guess, or more normal. And so now I am working on a new film, which I wrote during the pandemic when I was in quarantine which is more of a psychological thriller called Animal Cruelty. And before you ask, the title, one, no animals are harmed in this film. And two, the, the title doesn't mean anything. It's just, it sounds cool, and I wanted to use it. I needed confirmation of that on the phone. Like, are animals hurt in this movie? Because I'm not a trigger warning person. I don't need anything. <clears throat> but there is a website, Does the Dog Die?, that I will routinely look at. As soon as a movie shows up, especially if it's a horror film, like... All right. I got to go to that. I just need to know. I got not will, to like ruin it. I don't want to read too much. It's like I just need a yes or no answer so I could prepare myself mentally because I'm a big animal person. I, I will say uh, just a little sidebar. I'm the same. I just watched and actually I just want to do a little shout out. I mean, I know this will air several weeks or a couple months from when we're recording it, but. In November, when we're recording this now, I watched this amazing film called Soft and Quiet. Mm. Have you heard of it? I have. I have not seen it yet. So I will say this. Incredible film that is also something I never want to ever see again. I will not say what happens because the less you know, the better. I will tell you this. As much horrifying, like, requiem for a dream level shit goes down there is a point where where the main characters find a dog and i was like oh my god please let the dog be okay so spoiler alert soft and quiet the dog is okay some of the people in the dog's vicinity not so okay but that's all i'm saying Uh, see soft and quiet it's great it's horrifying (laughs) yeah it's so weird i could watch the most awful shit happened to a person on screen and go oh that's messed up like just like that like just kind of amused by it like oh i'd hate for that to happen if a dog is being yelled at too harshly i'm like oh come on let's skip this did you did you freak out and my dog skip when uh malcolm in the middle hit skip with the newspaper on the yes, nose i don't care for that the episode of futurama jurassic bark is one of the most traumatizing things I've ever seen. Getting back to Mike Starr, I want to just take a few seconds to talk about him. Sure, uh, I love Mike. Mike is one of the great character actors of our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has worked with, dude, let's just go through some of the people he's worked with. I, I can I can ra- ra- rattle it off for me. me. So let me just rattle it off. It's um, Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, William Friedkin, <clears throat> pre-cancellation Woody Allen, Farrelly Brothers. He's he's iconic in Dumb and Dumber as the gas man. How'd they know I got gas? Well, I'm sure I'm forgetting some some people. Who else is there? I mean, uh, I, uh, Friedkin, uh, Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. He's it's just uh, the list is goes on and on. John Hughes. The guy has worked with every major director. Mm-hmm. And some multiple times. He's one of the great character actors 
it's it's kind of a funny story. I didn't meet Mike on a set. I oh. actually, did you know that? No. Mike used to live in Chicago and I'm from Chicago and we used to, my family and I, and Mike himself also in his family, we used to hang out at this really great restaurant um, called Stanley's. And my mom was in there having lunch one day and just met Mike and was like, she goes, are you Mike star? And he goes, yes, I am. And she said, Oh my God, you know, my, um, my son, loves you we love you we're we're huge fans i was working on a movie set that mike knew the producer on the movie and my mom was like i would love if there's a way i could introduce my son to you i'd love that and she was like he was like yes of course and we became friends because he was living in chicago for a few years then this is the early mid 2000s and we stayed in touch and we would meet up uh, once he moved back to to the East Coast, he moved to New Jersey. I went to school in New York at NYU, and then we would meet up. You're an NYU me... guy. I didn't. I didn't know. Oh, I yeah. did know that. I must have. Forgot. You did. It's okay. It happens. And he and I, he got me the the job on um, on Matt's film, Matthew's film that you and I met on. Mm-hmm. And then later, when I was uh, getting ready to make Recovery, I had this part that I wanted him to play that he does play in the movie, the head of the rehab facility. I was really moved because he read the screenplay and he goes, well, which part did you want me to play? And I said, well, I want you to play the doctor. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah, I think you'd be great in it. And he was really excited because he said he normally doesn't get these kinds of uh, roles. And he I was I we had a great experience on the set uh, working together, which it was my first movie. And I was I was very nervous. And I was also very nervous because I knew Mike wouldn't treat me like a kid. But, you know, we've listed his credits and I was like, he's you know, worked for Friedkin and Scorsese. I, I know I'm not that level on my first movie, but I want to do a good job and not to toot my own horn. But it went really well. And Mike was like such a gentlemen everybody loved him on the on his last day he brought i forgot what he got the dudes but he gave every woman cast and crew on the set a rose a long stemmed rose from a flower shop and that must have been like jesus at like probably two dozen roses that he gave each one to a woman and it was uh he's a real gentleman he's a great guy he's a great dude my experience working with him and just it's the funniest thing is you always hear this about uh, character actors like him guys who he's a guy who always plays the heavy you always cast him as the heavy or just some kind of just like just kind of a brutish vulgar guy you just that's what you cast him as that's what people always cast him as and just like most of those guys you always hear about they're usually the sweetest people in real life yeah my experience with him was i was kind of starstruck when he showed up to the set pun, pun intended starstruck Oh my God. I didn't even <laughs> catch that. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so go on. You were starstruck. I was, star- <laughs> I was starstruck. And we, and of course the first movie, uh, the first movie I want to talk about with him is uh, the Chris Elliott masterpiece cabin boy. Oh, love cabin boy. I love it too. And I just, cause I, I made it up. I said, 
you know, Cabin Boy was on TV the other day. And I'm like, hey, I'm working with that guy. And he's just, uh, and, which was a lie. It wasn't on. I just wanted to talk about Cabin Boy with him. And he was just funny. He was just really generous with stories. Like, and he'd be like, you want to hear another funny story? And like, it'd be literally, okay, and cut. He'd run out. So I'm working on Miller's Crossing. And he's just telling me all these stories about yeah. these legendary directors. Like he's just telling me Coen Brothers stories, Scorsese stories. And I'm like just sitting there like and he he just loves talking, like telling these fun stories. He's like, oh, I'll tell you a cool story about this. It's like and action. Hold on a second. I'll be right back. And he'll go do his scene. He's such a pro. Like he switches it right on and then comes right back and cut. So <laughs> I'm on baby's day out. It's just like he was just he was just constantly I, telling stories. And he's just also, the nicest guy. I love him. Yeah. I want to. um I also just want, since we're talking about his filmography, uh, the movie that really are that brought us, he and my family together. It's this really, really excellent, made for HBO movie from the mid to late '90s called Path to Paradise, and Path to Paradise is this movie <clears throat> where um, that's about the first World Trade Center bombing. Mm. in 90 in 93 and unfortunately at least as of now it's not streaming and ugh, it's not on hbo max you you have to get a dvd which is ugh, physical media um <laughs> but oh, here's don't the thing. say that in front of marcus yeah well you know marcus is three thousand miles away i'm not scared of him <laughs> we gotta have you i just realized we should i should have you both on at one point that oh, would be I would love really that. That would fun be great That'd be that would really be really fun. Yeah, that would be no. I'm I'm down for that. I'll do yeah. that. So so it's you know it's New York and New Jersey. It's set in New York and New Jersey, in the lead up to, and then the aftermath of the World Trade Center, the first bombing. But Mike isn't like a gruff NYPD cop. He's not like a a Jersey guy. Mike plays an Egyptian who is involved in the bombing and he does an Egyptian accent and he has this great line where uh, Art Malik, who plays uh, the leader of Crimson Jihad in True Lies and Art Malik is playing Ramzi Youssef, who's the main bomber. And Ramzi Youssef is teasing Mike's character who right now, I don't remember his name about how his character has red hair, a red beard. And it said, it's the, it's the European blood that the Crusaders left when they invaded the Middle East during the Crusades. And Mike has this really great line about how basically he's like, so they say, but now I'm a warrior for Allah. And he has this line about how after what they, what they're going to do, things like that will never happen again. And he is really great and really chilling in this movie. And we, my mom brought that up. She was like, Mike, you know, we love, we love path to paradise. And he, was just like, oh, thank you so much. Um, and he talked about how he really worked on the Egyptian accent and getting the dialect right. And and um, actors really, they they really appreciate when you know their deep cut work. Uh, my big thing with him was the thing I, I the second thing I brought up to him because it's it, and it's it's for real is my favorite moment of physical comedy ever directed in a film is in Miller's Crossing. Uh, oh, he plays the chair? the chair when when Gabriel Byrne hits him with the chair 
And it's just like this moment where he he's essentially, so hurt. he, he's, I said, I, I said, I have to say one of the funniest moments of physical comedy ever put on film uh, is when Gabriel Byrne hits you in the chair in Miller's Crossing and you don't react the way I, anybody thinks you react. You just go, you just take the hit, hold your mouth and go, Jesus, Tom. And not in like an angry way, like, say that wasn't very nice it's yeah. so funny it's so beautifully played by him and i said you make that moment it's my favorite moment of physical comedy ever and he was really yeah like like you're saying he he really was like thank you like you know he really appreciates that and he deserves all that kind of uh, those kind of accolades anytime Absolutely. you see mike He's star on the street you tell him how great he is in something it's not very hard to find a great mike star performance it's it's true and um <clears throat> And he's also, like I said, he's just such a, a gentleman and uh, he's in cruising. So that's a crazy movie because he's with freaking and he's sharing most of his scenes with the legendary actor, Joe Spinell. That's something oh, if I ever run into him, really cheat. I don't know. Heart attack. You know how Joe Spinell got uh, discovered? No. Oh, it's really cool. He was a he was a cab driver in New York City and no acting experience, nothing. He's driving Pe Sam Peckinpah one day. Oh my God. Sam Peckinpah looks at his hack license that, they, you know, they have on the back of the driver's seat and it just says, you look like a killer. You oh. would be great in this movie they're casting. And because he, he was actually speaking about the Godfather Peckinpah. Oh. He's like, they're casting a movie right now. I'd say you should go in for it. So uh, Willie Chichi is that's his first role because they just because Sam Peckinpah saw him and said, dude, you look like a killer. I love that story. So that I had no idea. I thought, um, oh yeah, because he's in Taxi Driver, but that's after Godfather One, obviously. That's that's an insane story. And then, um, did you know Willie Chichi was actually supposed to have? Um, I think he was supposed to have the Joe Montana part in Godfather Three, but unfortunately, Spinell passed away before they shot. Um, yeah. They could shoot Godfather Three, maybe, or maybe it's not so unfortunate for him. He doesn't have to be in Godfather Three. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah um it was a win but, all around on that on that deal yeah yeah he doesn't have to be in godfather 3 and uh he gets to be dead so <laughs> what more could you want um but i'm really excited also because mike uh star is going to be in uh in my next movie too we're working on uh on that and he's going to be the i would say the main antagonist uh circling back to recovery where can we find this film well recovery is on amazon prime video and viewdo and other streaming services it is also if you are old school like marcus slabine you can go to target or walmart and you can get a physical dvd of it so that's wow. where it is. It's on Amazon. I'm sorry, but they did put it back behind the paywall. It was up there for free for like a year, but now you're going to have to pay to rent or purchase it, or you can go buy the DVD. And I think you should buy the DVD. Yeah. Go to Wal Don't go to Walmart, go to Target. They're less evil. <laughs> and they give you those bags. If you're in New York, uh, I guess it's like that in California. They give you those, uh, those really good, high quality bags for just basically I like the bag, a nickel. Yeah. Dude, I have too many of those bags. <laughs> Because oh. I, I, I always forget to bring them with me. So I wind up getting more bags. So, and I can't, I don't feel like 
good about throwing them, you know, cause they're, they're, they're good bags. I'm like, I can't throw these out. Like, it's not like a plastic bag. You could throw it out. It's like, I should keep this bag. So we have piles of those bags. I'm a hoarder for target bags. Essentially. Well, I need help. I mean, there's, there's worse stuff. You could hoard Frank. I mean, that's not so bad. That's, that's a, that's a venial sin, not a mortal <laughs> sin. Uh, so uh, I always ask this of uh, filmmakers on the show if what's your dream project if money wasn't an issue so my dream project is a script that i'm writing now it's an original idea and it's called monomania and it is about a social media influencer who's i mean not middle-aged by like regular standards but she's you know like creeping up to 40 and so she has herself cloned in order to like stay hot and stay relevant and then she falls in love with her clone uh dude stop i'm gonna stop you yeah don't say anymore because i'm hooked i'm hooked on that concept thank you yeah and i would just well i would say this i i have really i've had the idea for a couple of years or or maybe three and only recently the timing is really uh fortuitous because only a couple days before this recording did i finally crack it you know the last piece of the puzzle fell into place i will i okay i won't i won't delve too much into more plot stuff but i will throw out some of the influences pun intended um (laughs) it's a heady brew because it's uh, well i i will say one other thing the the influencer her clone who's actually younger than her uh which for influencers is it's and for her a double-edged sword are not the only main characters the third main character is the scientist who develops and then in uh, vents the clone tech so it's this woman scientist this woman influencer which maybe is redundant and then the clone so some of the influences for this movie are matt spicer's ingrid goes west which is still for my still for my money the best aubrey plaza performance and movie my film Um, uh, i think that was at 2019 or 2017 17 wow far back yeah that was my favorite movie that year by a wide margin and i think well let me ask you frank but I think, unfortunately, Ingrid is kind of getting forgotten or people don't really know about it. Yeah, I was I was really when it came out, I said, this is going to be a big thing. And it was just like another piece of content on Hulu. It became and it deserves way more than that. It does, um, especially since Aubrey has become such an indie queen. Maybe future generations will discover. I don't know. But Ingrid Goes West, Promising Young Woman. David Cronenberg's The Fly, and actually the the big one, the big influence is actually being John Malkovich, mm. because it's all these questions of identity and uh, this and that. Okay, I I have to I, you can edit this out if you want, but one other nugget, which is that the clone is like a morally better person than the original. And some of the movie gets into like, well, what if there was a version of you that was a better person than you yourself are? How would you feel about that? Uh, dude, there's a that's a that's yeah, that's thick, dude. Yeah, there's there's a lot. There's so, a um, lot. Yeah, I could see why it's like it's a dream project because those are those 
pie in the sky dream films where it's just like, man, if I had the money, because that's money right there. That's that's yeah. merchandising. That's As a uh, friend of ours, <laughs> friend of ours, uh, friend of a friend of a friend, not a friend of ours. I don't know where that man came from. I don't think he's a made man, but um, it's yeah. I was in a. <clears throat> I would just say this. I I was in a very I was in a depression state when I started writing it because I had had a setback uh, with my movie and I just was like, you know, I'm so tired of very, very consciously writing to a budget like, okay, make sure it's not too expensive. Make sure there's not too many locations. Make sure there's no extras. Make sure this, make sure that make sure this person doesn't have any lines because then you can pay them less. And I just wanted to write something that I wasn't worrying or thinking about those budgetary or logistical production constraints. And I was just like, write the clone stuff. I mean, even before, cause originally it was like an exact double, not like she's 20 years younger. It's still an expensive movie, like with science shit and, you know, the Jacob's ladders and, you know, sparks shooting out of the laboratory and whatnot. No, no that need, you need cash for that kind of, that kind of concept to do it right. Like I, I, I've gone through that too, where it's, you know, like my first film was welcome to ev- future. Yes. Uh, was every sentence is every beat of that film is all about worrying about the concessions. It's just because it was there. If, if you've seen the film, you understand that yeah. I, I was, the the production you know was gimped by the circumstances in which we made it so i had to be conscious of all of those things going into it otherwise we wouldn't have been able to pull it off and it's frustrating that is frustrating thank you so much uh but yeah i got into that thing where i wrote something i was just like you know what's great about the the audio drama world i'm in now uh you really don't have to consider those things on any level i i i'm writing something now that hopefully we we're able to produce soon we got a few in the pipe we got a few in the oven right now but i've got one that's it's it starts with like hey how would i start a story with an exciting car chase with explosions happening all around it i said i don't have to worry about that yeah and i said let's just go as big as we can and it's even it makes it, and it makes it perverse that you actually can't see it, which makes it there's that level of perversity to it, where well, it's well, just Frank, like, maybe... hey, this sounds amazing, right? Be cool if you could see it. Like that's maybe, funny to me. Maybe they'll um well then maybe once it's out maybe they'll adapt it into a a movie or a limited series and then you can see it. Well, that's how what's it called started. Uh, speaking of uh, Charlie Kaufman. Uh... Anomalisa. Anomalisa. Yes, I believe that was a ra- uh, an audio drama. That's yeah, how it was, it was originally made. Yeah. Oh, so fucking depressing. Oh, I, I love it. I, I love know. It. I I do not like Kaufman on his own. I'll just say it. I think uh, that by himself. I, like I think by himself he's too depressing. Kaufman. No, that's my do. favorite. Oh, just you know? hit me with the fucking ennui, uh, dude. Just it's let it. Ennui. It's past that. Oh no, it's like full... I think. He needs uh, a Gondry or a Jones to level him out because on his own, he's like, and I mean this in a bad way, he's just like American Ingmar Bergman. Yes. Where it's just like, let's sit around and talk about how depressing it is that we're all going to die and how no one can truly ever know anyone else and blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> I love it. It's like, that's like porn to me. The, I, oh I, my God. I, 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 I actually don't like, like, like uh, 
big John Malkovich in a lot of oh. places. It's a great movie, but I'm just saying because it's like it's too much. It's too funny. Stop it's this. Too fun. I will. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I I love stuff like that. Like the, okay, my, one of my well, favorite things ever good. is the Singing Detective, and that's oh, just I that. oh, it's the great. British it's just, or the remake. Uh, I've never seen the remake, the British one. Yeah. It's just six hours of a man in a bed talking about how life stinks and oh. he wishes he was dead i'm like i my only complaint is that it's not 12 hours it's like <laughs> uh, fuck you <laughs> i will say this though as maybe a i may be contradicting myself one of the darkest funniest things i've ever seen in a movie or i guess it's technically tv is in scenes from a marriage where uh oh. fucking live live ullman is talking to her. I think they're still together at that point. Her husband, Erland Yofison, good actor. And she's going on this heartbreaking monologue about how she's never known herself and she doesn't know who she is. And she's just done things because people or the church or society tell her to, but who am I really deep inside? And the camera cuts from, she's going through a photo album and it cuts to a close, um, a medium close up of her because they're sitting on a couch, and Bergman pans over and her husband's fucking asleep, and he's not like dozing. He's just like out. He's on the couch. You can't see me, but I'm on a couch just yeah. leaning over, and he is gone. And she's just like, uh, it's. And I just was watching it with my friend, and I just could not stop laughing. It's so bleak. So that stuff can be funny, but for me, it's like. There's a sweet I, I spot. It. It There's depends. a sweet spot. It also I, I couldn't finish. I didn't thinking of ending things. I had to just turn it off. Oh, I loved it. It's just. Uh, I know you did. Oh, it's a it's a guy. Here, here's what I it know. is. Some no, fucking custodian. No, so yeah. I'll just. Ruin the, I, I'm not going to ruin the movie, but spoilers for. I'm thinking of ending things to anyone who hasn't seen it yet and a wanted to. Miserable custodian has a heart attack. The end. I love it. I uh, love that Jesus. movie. It's like yes. Uh, I I will say this for Kaufman. Um, my buddy and I talk a lot about how these days American and sorry, but especially foreign films have this thing that critics love that we call the war on style, which is basically people love movies where nothing and critics especially love movies where nothing happens and no one does anything. So it's like <laughs> the less action, the better. And I will say this for Kaufman, as dark, bleak, and depressing as his stuff is, it's it's not movies where nothing happens. It's not that. He's not doing that. I mean, things yeah. happen. They're, things happen. They're just not the things you would want to happen. Right. I mean, he's wallowing in shit. But, <gasps> I mean, but I'm okay I, with that. I would that. have said despair been maybe a little less vulgar. I'm not. Yeah, I'm reprimanding you. There's but it's, certain, yeah. <laughs> certainly a better ways I could have put that. But I'll, you know what, though, Senecity, when he's like falling apart and he has to have artificial tears to cry, yeah, that's wallowing in shit. That's like sepsis. Yeah, I love it. You know, it's a movie we both love, and we got We're not going to do it now, but when we maybe we have Marcus on, we got to talk about that'll be just fine. What? Oh yeah. Well, the whole the whole Dark Man trilogy is something we should to discuss. Yeah, when I was still like uh, working out the concept for the show originally, and I, I've already talked about this in a previous episode, uh, where I was just working out the concept, I said, maybe I'll just talk about movies I like, cult films. And it's just like, before I decided, and we recorded a couple of those, maybe I'll release them, maybe I won't. 
Uh, oh, no, I don't know. If, uh, you know, if, if, if this thing gets an audience and they say, hey, I'd like to hear what your initial concept was. I do have a couple banked before I said, no, nah, this isn't the show. No. But uh, yeah, our initial con our initial talks about doing this was let's just talk about the dark, the dark man trilogy. Yeah, Cause it's been a while since I've watched to uh, die, dark man, die and the return of Durant. But die, dark man, die is number three. Did I get it reversed? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you did. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. The Arnold Vosloo starring Dark Men films, which Dark Men? Do you do you pluralize it I that way? Dark Men. <laughs> I do like I'm intrigued. I am intrigued that Liam Neeson in the last few months said he was interested in doing a legacy sequel to Dark Man. And I hope that Arnold Vosloo didn't read that story and go, oh man, I'm here. I've been Dark Man more than him. Well, we just just do what the, all these things are doing. It's just like he's the Dark Man of his un his respective universe. It's just like uh, a, please no it's multiverse. Just do a multiverse stuff. Just multiverse. Oh, no. Everything's multiverse now. I'm playing a game right now, and I'm like, it, it, here's the thing about multiverses between me and you. Okay, you know why the they audience. do multiverse stuff in comics? It wasn't because it was some cool science fiction ideas. It's just to clean up their messy continuity. Well, and, in the movies, aren't they just going to use the multiverse to recast people when they become problematic right. or whatever? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not really... First of all, does don't you feel as an audience member the concept of the multiverse cheapens what your characters are doing? Because when you look at it through that lens in a grand cosmic sense, what they're doing means nothing. Because in an infinite other universes, if they do the op, they could be doing the opposite. So it's like, it really cheapens what they do. It's like, oh, my aunt's dead but not here it's like uh i guess i mean i just really i saw the multiverse movies the doctor strange one and the michelle I enjoyed it. one and i i, I enjoyed they're, them i mean they're but... good they're good but i also i think it's more of a cool gimmick than something people have cracked i don't think they have justified the multiverse yet Right. It's just a, it's a right now it's a gimmick, but it's usually made to clean up messes. So I'm bracing myself for that. It's just like I eventually it's just say, a tool just to clean up storytelling we'll messes. See, this might age badly too, but I'm going to make a prediction, which is that they announced Avengers 5 and uh, 6, which are going to have multiverse shit, obviously, and uh, Kang. It's not going to go away. I'm not naive, I'm not a child. But there's going to be some, my guess is, even if those movies are good, they're not going to knock it out of the park. They certainly won't be as good as Infinity War and Endgame. And you're going to see some sort of retooling or restructuring of the MCU after Avengers 6. I don't know what. And it's not going to end. It's not going to wrap up. Feige isn't going to just say, all right, well, that's the end of the story. Bye. Because if they was, they should have done that. And they would have done it after Endgame, which is honestly what I think they should have done. Just you're done that's over see i don't i don't think and it's sunk. something's gonna happen something's gonna change i don't know what that will look like so i'm kind of hedging but it's not gonna be it's not gonna be the cultural juggernaut it is now forever and something's gonna be different after avengers 6 i don't think it's the cultural juggernaut it was when endgame hit i think it's that's already you're already starting to see the cracks like these things were a safe bet at the box office they no longer are it's did you uh, see thor 4 no it is awful it is unwatchable really see it's like, I, i've heard it's that. like not just like bad but like incompetently made really that's interesting i i didn't expect that uh because i like taiki 
I do too. And I like Ragnarok and I like that movie he made about Hitler where he's Hitler and <laughs> um, movie about Hitler where he's Hitler. <laughs> How far are you along with animal cruelty? Well, we are in pre-production. We're going to be shooting the, we're going to shoot animal cruelty in the spring of 2023. Uh, I wrote this during the pandemic when it was raging, when I had COVID, which sucked. Fun fact, had COVID three times so far. Jesus. Yeah, I'm lucky though. It gets easier each time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like jail. It's like, oh, whatever. I'll do my nickel. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I wrote it when I was just in quarantine, in lockdown, and <clears throat> uh, it's about a it's about a divorced couple who are still cohabitating due to lack of funds. They don't have the money to live separately, um, and there's a home invasion, and these people, this husband and wife, erstwhile husband and wife, have to find some way to trust each other again if they're going to survive the night and mike mike star is back in it he is the lead home invader the head burglar uh i also want to mention liz fenning my friend who is an actor who was in uh, she was in recovery and she's going to be back in this film and right now we're just getting our cast the rest of our cast together it's actually it's weird I didn't write it to be this way, but it's actually technically smaller than Recovery because it has fewer cast members. And it it takes place over less time, which I know won't affect how you make it, but Recovery is like over like three days and Animal Cruelty is like a night. And um, since I like throwing out influences, actually the, the movies I would say that influence this mostly. Desperate Hours? I haven't seen Desperate Hours. Oh, wow. Is that the um, who's in that? Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis? No. Uh, so Melanie Griffith. I can't remember. They're all Melanie now. Um, <laughs> and so the the two movies that are the most influential are Green Room, uh, mm. the Jeremy Jeremy Saulnier film, and then Panic Room by David Fincher. Mm. Uh, and then the third one that I realized recently. Uh, very different tonally, obviously, but uh, a big influence, I think, is from Dusk Till Dawn, the Robert Rodriguez oh, Tarantino vampire movie. There are no spoilers. Sorry, there's no vampires in this movie. Um, but I'm I'm really excited to um, to make it. I had the idea a little before COVID started, but once I was in lockdown, I actually quarantined. Um, back in Chicago with my father uh, and he and I get along, you know, it wasn't like we were at each other's throats. So I was like, I'm going to write something where they're at each other's throats. Um, but I just, you know, was in a very dark place. The idea place. of being forced to cohabitate with somebody you don't like, which was a lot of people's situation. It's, right. Right. There's a lot of dramatic possibilities there. I mean, I was lucky in that. Um, I, I always say that, you know, my dad and I have always gotten along. Uh, and I would, I say that if, well, when we get on each other's nerves, it's generally like sitcom neighbor shit. Like, it's not like dark Bergman, uh, you ruined my life shit. It's generally like, you didn't wash the dishes or, <laughs> or you left the door. Um, you didn't, you didn't form a seal when you closed the refrigerator door, like that level of, of stuff. Right. 
Um, but I just had, I was thinking about confinement. I was thinking about being trapped somewhere. Things were very scary because I started writing it in summer of 2020 when it really felt like everything was falling apart. Um, not that it's so much better now. And um, I just thought there were a lot of dramatic possibilities. I I wrote this role, this uh, burglar role, specifically for Mike Starr, so I'm very excited. Uh, and he has read the script, and we have some, you know, we've talked about his character, and I'm excited to work um, further with him on this. But also, I... Um, once we cast our our lead and our our lead is a uh, is a woman who works as a nurse in the ICU and uh, her husband's like this real dirt bag uh, the first scene of the movie is just him doing coke spoilers uh, for a movie that hasn't been made yet and um, once we cast those two and get the right actor and actress who can play this people who were close, who still know each other very well, but do not like each other anymore. I'm really excited because at least for me, one thing I love, I love working with actors. When we did recovery, Mike and I rehearsed Mike and he has most of his scenes with um, Hope Quatraki, who plays the other doctor. She and Mike rehearsed. And recovery has a pretty nicely sized ensemble, uh, yeah, which yeah. I was like sweating watching that. So that's a lot of business you had to cover in those scenes, and like especially in the group yeah. scenes. So it's like, oh, wow, yeah. that's, uh... those. Unfortunately, we didn't get to rehearse those, which I would have liked if we could have. We just didn't have the time. Just shooting uh, but... rehearsal, essentially. Yeah, like... yeah exactly. Um, but we did get. I spent time with all the actors and talked about them. Uh, about their roles with them and their backstories and things that I think really helped them <clears throat> and helped their performances and hopefully helped the the movie. I will say this is just, again, this is a sidebar. We auditioned so many people, but we had way too many. We scheduled, this is our production's fault. My team and I scheduled so many people for like these very, you know, pretty small parts where there's only like a couple lines and this one woman, I cannot, I'll never forget it. She came in, she auditioned for one of these roles that doesn't have a lot of dialogue. And she was, she was fine. She wasn't bad. She wasn't great. She wasn't good, but she was like, whatever. Okay. We stopped taping her audition and my producer goes, okay, thank you very much. And this woman had like this hat. She yanks the hat off her head. She squeezes it tight in her lap and she screams, and I'm going to hold the phone away for this. She goes, no! <laughs> and me and my producers just sort of look at each other like, what the fuck? <laughs> and the, the producer who was walking people in and out of the audition room goes, okay, well, I am going to walk you out now and and we'll get back to you. And it was yeah, just, what do you, where do you, what do you do there? <laughs> it's it's uh, like, what's the protocol here? <laughs> like, what was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to walk over and tap, pat her shoulder and just be like, they're there. <laughs> they're there. <laughs> like, I, and again, this woman was fine. She wasn't good. She wasn't bad. It wasn't like, there were some guys who came in who were bad. There was, I wish this guy had. I wish this guy had been good because then we could have used his name. This guy named Dwayne Johnson came in 
fucking awful. Couldn't even read. But we're like, ooh, ooh, Dwayne Johnson. If we, uh, you could brand. That's uh, if we get that's merchandising. That's merchandising. (laughs) If we get him, we put his name on the poster. (laughs) Um, But I was just like, what are you? What are you? What is this woman doing? What is she even? No, well, I I mean, maybe this. I I don't want to talk out of school, but I. There seems to be a lot of mentally unstable people in the in the entertainment, entertainment industry. Yeah. No, 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 no. That can't be. That can't be. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was um, just to get back on track. The working and prepping with the actors was helpful and also a lot of fun. And I hope right now we have a schedule for when we shoot. And right now we have some rehearsal time. So I hope we can keep that uh, because I get a lot out of it. And I know, you know, you have, you hear these stories about actors, some of them like big deal actors who are like, I don't want to rehearse. I don't want to kill the spontaneity. It's like, well, at least to me, like you're going to be repeating the same stuff over and over. It's not like you're in a play. It's not like free flowing. So I'm at least me. I don't worry too much about spontaneity dying, but that's just me. Everybody has their own process. Uh, I, I myself, uh, I need to be rehearsed to a fucking, when I act, I don't do it much, but when I, I've been called to act, I, I have to rehearse the shit out of everything for myself. Cause I, I, even with this show, like you saw earlier, if I don't have everything written down in front of me, uh, I can't, I can't function. I have the improv skills of a dead raccoon. It's really bad. Mm-hmm. Well, don't, don't be so hard on yourself. Don't be so harsh. <laughs> So is there any kind of like outro, like thanks for coming on or <laughs> I mean, we have time. That's all the time I have because I got to go eat something. I'm dying. Uh... Please don't die. <laughs> thanks for having me. On. No, thank you for coming on the Th- show. Uh, thank you, know, you for having welcome. me on, Frank. It was a lot of fun. A hundred percent. And we definitely got to have you on. We definitely, Love I'm going to reach out to Marcus and see if we could do like, let's you know, do the, let's do, do the dark fucking, man trilogy. Yeah. Let's do a Mexican standoff. All three of us. And, uh, check Frank, out. His- stop fucking that, that gun at my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I- <laughs>